Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Trump tax plan. And Richard, we now have the broad outlines of the Trump administration's plan for tax reform. I'll get to having you audit that in a moment, but why don't we start just by taking stock of where we are now. If we are looking at the status quo, what does the current American tax system do well? What doesn't it do well? Well, the first thing about it is it's much too long and much too complicated. The way in which tax legislation is passed in the United States is periodically you get somebody to come in and cleanse the stables and then having a relatively simple code comparatively as you did in 1986 with the Reagan amendments, everybody says, but you know, I have a very special case. We ought to give an earned income tax pledge. And it turns out solar energy certainly needs some kind of preferences, and so too does wind, and so too does this, and so too does that. And by the time you're done, what you do is you then start to give a series of exemptions that nobody quite understands. On top of all of this, there's always a tendency to try to figure out how it is that you can soak the rich for a little bit more than they would pay. This means there's constant pressure to increase the progressive level of taxation and a constant pressure to try to chip away at the sort of deductions that are given to rich people. Uh, so, for example, on the home mortgage deduction, a bad idea in general. Uh, what happens is it's only allowed for first homes and only up to a million dollars, which is clearly an effort to get at the mega mansions that line Park Avenue and similar places. And if you look at the charitable deduction, and this one I think is much more insidious, uh, the Obama administration moved but failed, and what they try to do is to limit it to a 28% deduction, even as they raised the marginal tax brackets, and the reason this tended to lose out is you did not know whether you were taxing the poor who received the money or denying tax benefits to the rich who paid it, and there was enough ambiguity on that that the charities, very powerful in Washington, managed to beat it back. So progressivity and complexity turn out to be a great deal of this problem. A third issue, which was much less important when I tended to teach back taxes I did uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, is the question of how you integrate foreign income uh, tax transactions with domestic ones. Um, 40 or 50 years ago, there was always an international tax code, uh, but the number of international corporations, the number of transactions that were cross-border were relatively small. The rise of complex interests like derivatives was much less frequent. Today, this is just absolutely a huge problem. Of how you start to organize this. And there's a tendency in the code to essentially punish companies that want to repatriate money into the United States. There were efforts on the part of the Trump administration and the Obama administration to punish people who want to go overseas in one state or another. And everybody sort of thinks that the taxes are a perfect way in which to do this. And if you looked at each of these particular devices alone and in isolation, you might say, this is not a very bad idea. But when you put 5, 10, 15, 20 of these things together, Together, what happens is it becomes a form of Hungarian goulash, to uh, use a metaphor, and the system tends to break down. And so people like myself, very much in the tradition of Adam Smith, uh, tend to have basically the following mantra. Uh, broad tax base, you don't want to exclude certain kinds of assets from it, capital gains, for example, um, and low consistent rates. Uh, what you want to do, in effect, is to make sure that the taxes have as little impact as they could possibly have 
on the way in which people make allocative forces in their business. And so if you can get a tax, ideally I think in the form of a flat consumption tax, it would probably generate enough growth to overcome many of the so-called equitable interests in efforts to try and give greater support to the poor from the rich uh, through the medium of the tax system. That insight, I suspect, is going to feed into your answer to this question. Based on the limited information that we have at the moment, two of the big topics of debate on tax reform have been what kind of effect the president's plan might have on growth and what kind of effect it might have on deficits. Yet I quote here one Richard Epstein writing in Defining Ideas. You say it puts the cart before the horse to think about growth and deficits before getting the right tax structure into place. Explain what you mean. What, by what that. happens is it's instead of trying to figure out how it is that you tweak the situation here, there, and the other place in order to respond to short-term situations, what you'd like to do is to have a tax structure which remains constant so that the only degree of freedom that the government has is to change the rates up and down with respect to everybody more or less. And the point about this is that one of the real costs that you get from the current system where everything's in play in every way on every day is that there's uncertainty. And if you have a tax code, which essentially is going to have a useful life of one or two years, and you have people making investment and retirement decisions that have to span a decade or more, it turns out that you're going to be a little bit cautious about making long-term commitments if you don't know down the road exactly the way in which this thing is going to play out. If, in fact, you could agree on a stable constitutional structure with respect to taxes, and the only degree of freedoms you have is to move one or two numbers up or down, uh, it's much easier to plan because now people are not going to be afraid that their particular investments are going to be isolated. They're not going to worry that their competitors in a different industry related to their own are going to subsidy that they don't want. And so what you could expect to do is to see that the overall rate of investment will start to increase. And, you know, you, when you're running yourself a, an economy which is well over $20 trillion, I guess, right now, and you could figure out a way to goose this thing up by even a couple of percentage points, that could be hundreds of billions of dollars added into the system wholly without regard to redistribution. And I take as a general proposition that you'd rather first get the pie large instead of worrying about the relative size of the slices and then and only then when there's some serious distributional gap that you can find do you want to try to figure out some way in which to handle it. So this tends to push you towards a flat tax, a flat consumption tax so that you don't have to spend your time trying to figure out whether or not when you have a closed corporation, the income is taxed at the low capital gains rate or at the high ordinary income rate. And that's always a losing proposition. And if you look at the consumption side, the source of the income is irrelevant. And all of this very arcane tax law that we now have tends to drop away. Richard, Mike Lee and Marco Rubio, two pretty stalwart conservative senators, have been outspoken about the fact that in their view, the child tax credit needs to be doubled. Uh, the Trump plan calls for a significant expansion of that credit. It doesn't really define what that is. Uh, but I know you're not a fan. Make the case against Well, Trump. I mean it's just the, – the first case against it is you start with the child credit. Um, is there going to be another ones down the road? And the second question, you always have to ask exactly what the size of this particular credit is going to be and why. And the third one is every time you start talking about a tax credit in one form or another, there's always a question of why it is that people who choose to live their lives without having children have to subsidize those who uh, wish to have their children. And so in general, it's not going to run this thing through the tax system uh, creates those difficulties as well. 
well as a kind of administrative nightmare. And, you know, I don't regard this as the end of the world. I mean, I think many of the other kinds of credits that you have are much more dangerous. Uh, but it's my usual view in favor of simplicity that tends to dominate this. I understand why they think that way. The birth rates in the United States are quite low. And what they do is they think that the tax credit might well boost them up a little bit. I would give the contrary argument. If you start thinking about these things as tax cuts, people may be able to get a tax break, but if you don't get the basic structure right, then wages and employment levels are generally going to fall, and I think the best way to handle the tax thing is to try to make sure that two-parent families stay together and that you increase the level of worker participation, particularly among men between, say, 18 and 45, where participation rates have gone down very, very low. So rather than give the subsidy to deal with this problem, I think the better approach is to knock down the barriers that make it difficult for low-income people to get into the workforce. High minimum wage laws and various other kings like this will certainly have that kind of effect. Labor participation going down is, in fact, the single largest problem that we have. What it does is it means that people are more reluctant to get married uh, by virtue of the fact that they can't support it. Housing prices in many urban centers are extremely high. And so as in all particular cases, the Epstein premise always starts with the view, first look to remove a restraint on entry that seems to distort markets before you start creating a tax subsidy for one person, which is necessarily a tax increment on everybody else. And so uh, that particular general proposition is the one that applies, and I'm very reluctant to make any exceptions for it. Special pleading always has a bad smell in my nostrils. One of the emerging flashpoints in this discussion is the president's proposal to end the deduction for state and local taxes. As it stands now, the amount of your income that the federal government regards as taxable subtracts out your liability to state and local governments. Now, this is most acutely going to affect a handful of states that have very high tax rates. What's your reaction? Well, I would first of all restate the question. Um, it certainly means that states which have very high taxes, and these are your familiar friends, not all of them, but many of them, California, New York, and so forth, um, New Jersey, Maryland. Um, these are states which generally have Connecticut, tend to be badly governed, and so forth. And what would happen is the moment you start to say that they can no longer deduct their taxes, they can't force the folks from Texas and North Dakota to pay it. Uh, but to think that it only affects rich states is clearly wrong, because in Texas in Florida where you have no income tax whatsoever and these things are relatively tiny, consisting chiefly of property tax deduction, they're now going to be forced to pay more. And so the question is, do you want to subsidize states which have shown a market inability to handle their own affairs or to protect states from having to pay subsidies when they actually seem to be pretty good at the way in which they run it? And, but what you see is that this is no longer a Republican or a Democratic issue. Um, local state you know, representation really matters. So the Illinois delegation, Democrats and Republicans will rise as one, and the New York delegation will rise as one, and so forth. So it's extremely difficult to get this through. My political sense about this is that Trump is clearly right, and what you have to do is to work a deal. And the deal would be, I would say, let's try and say that you can only deduct one half of those particular things in an effort to mitigate the kinds of subsidies that are otherwise created. And that's going to have a little bit of something for everybody. 
And it's the kind of calculation which isn't so difficult dividing by two that it's going to add an extra measure of complexity into the system. Ideally, though, I think the president is clearly right on this. And I say this is a person who has income in New York and California, which are rather steep states, and in Illinois, malgoverned but with a flat tax. But it's characteristic in Illinois that the progressive Democrats are very keen on getting rid of the flat tax. But since it's there by constitutional amendment, they haven't been able to do it. Uh, But generally speaking, if you get the right federal treatment on this, uh, then you will start to see some condensation of the tax expansion in the uh, rich northern states like Connecticut, New York, California, and so forth. And that would be an improvement. So I think the president is clearly right on this issue. On a host of other domestic issues, Richard, it's not uncommon for people to point to international examples, countries that they think do a better job than we do. Is there a country or countries that you would point to when it comes to their taxation regimes that you think it would be worthwhile for the U.S.? Yes, I I think so. I mean the the general view is if you look at places like Estonia, which have consistent flat taxes, what they're able to do is to maintain budget surpluses and they're able to do so and continue to lower their taxes. What happens is a flat tax has dynamics on both places. One is it turns out to generally improve growth for the reason that I mentioned before. Uh, The horizon is now stable, so people are more willing to make long-run investments. Secondly, what it does is it reduces the degree of political intrigue. The only way you could raise your taxes on your rivals to raise them on yourself. And that means, for the most part, that people are now going to be reluctant to do so if to hurt somebody else that they have to, um, to hurt them own. And third, it turns out that what it does is it gives you all sorts of technical advantages. If you have a flat tax, the following problems start to disappear. You don't have to worry about income splitting within a family, closed family corporations. You don't have to worry about trusts and funny kinds of partnerships. You don't have to worry so much about the timing of taxes, whether it's done this year or next year. The moment you introduce progressivity, it turns out splitting income, deferring income, turning it from ordinary income into capital gains, um, all of this stuff takes an enormous toll on the overall operation of the system. And if you then add in the estate tax, which again, the Trump proposal calls to abolish, uh, this creates further the chaos. A, an estate tax is a deferred tax on savings, and what it does, therefore, is to encourage overconsumption during life. And in addition, it encourages people to make incredibly complicated business transactions, which are economically efficient. Uh, the society loses from the inefficiency, and the taxpayer gains from the fact that the gimmick reduces the tax level more than it hurts them for economic reasons. You don't want to put people into those situations. And so I think if you actually put all of this stuff together, what would happen is the improvements you would get in outcome from a simpler and more equitable tax system would swamp the distributional concerns that you would have and would also, I think, create incentives for growth on the one hand, for savings on the other. I mean, you can really do a lot, lot better than we've been able to do. And the question is whether this can take place. And, you know, if you start looking at the debate, it turns out that the Republicans are moderately sympathetic with exceptions like for the child tax credit. And the Democrats are uniformly hostile. 
Um, if you can't get the pure deal through, what do you do then? Well, you try to flatten the rates a little bit. But one of the discouraging features about the Trump plan is it sort of treats progressivity as a, an essential bedrock consideration in the American economy. I think that that's really a mistake in terms of what it gets. To give you but one technical point, there is no unique level of progressive tax. It could go up to 39% or it could go up as it did in the 50s to 90%. Uh, the theory doesn't tell which you want and it leads to all sorts of instability. Whereas a flat tax, essentially, you have a unique solution, and then when you have to change the levels, given what's going on, in times of crisis, you will raise the tax, and in good times, you'll probably be able to lower it, uh, because the size of government will shrink some, and the increase in the size of the economy would allow you to cut taxes without running deficits. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.